For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Amanda Glasner, Deputy Editor at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today is Heather Angle, Managing Partner at Strategic Cyber Partners. Heather, welcome back. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Today's story comes from the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts. The case involves 30-year-old Connor Lahith, who faces charges and has agreed to plead guilty in connection with a cyber attack that unfolded in June of 2023, specifically targeting the computer network of his former employer, which is a public high school in Essex County. According to court documents, Lahif utilized administrative privileges to disable phone systems and erase thousands of network user accounts. Heather, can you tell our listeners a little more about what happened and what you make of all this? Sure. So Lahif was employed as a desktop and a network manager at a public high school, and then he was terminated. And after he was fired, he used his administrative privileges to go in and deactivate and delete accounts, as you mentioned. So this left the school's phone service unavailable. It disabled the school's private branch phone system, obviously had a big impact on their IT services and their ability to serve their students. And so now he is being charged with unauthorized damages to protected computers. And obviously, there's a lot of things that could have been done to prevent this from happening. Over the past year, we've seen a real increase in cyber attacks hitting public schools though not all of them have been the result of a disgruntled former employee. To what extent would you say educational institutions, and especially public schools, are adequately equipped to defend against cyber attacks, and what changes might be necessary to enhance their protection? So a couple of things to talk about here, right? When we talk about public schools, one of the things that we always tell our clients is public schools are really ripe for attack for a couple of reasons. One is they have information on students and they have information on kids. And, you know, if I'm a cyber criminal and I can get my hands on a fresh social security number that hasn't been used, especially if that is for a kid that's 10 or 11, you know, I potentially have five to seven years of building credit using that social security number without anyone ever being the wiser. And so not only are public schools ripe with information for stealing, they're generally the level of cybersecurity across different school districts varies widely. So, you know, a small rural school district probably isn't going to have the same level of cybersecurity protections as some of the larger school districts in bigger cities. And, you know, there have been a number of attacks on bigger city public schools over the last couple of years, notably where there were ransomware attacks and student data was released out onto the black market. So how do we defend against this? It's the same problem that we see on the commercial side, which is there are not enough cybersecurity professionals and there's just not the resources there. And to add to that, you know, you have particularly public schools are competing against larger commercial entities, some of which are venture capital funded, and they're competing for talent with organizations that can typically pay a lot more. So, you know, I think for a lot of the administrators that I know at public schools, it really is a labor of love and they're feeling like they're able to give back to their community in that way. That's a good point. Looking at this case from an insider threat perspective, how can organizations manage the challenge of providing employees with essential administrative privileges while also implementing safeguards to prevent potential misuse later on? Well, there were a couple of things here. And, you know, I'm not familiar with this case on a firsthand basis, but just reading the article, one thing that really stood out to me was that this happened after this person was let go. After he was terminated, he still had the ability to go in and access information. So that is something that we advise all of our clients. You have to have 
a really solid process for offboarding users. We always talk about onboarding and what kind of permissions and how do we do background checks. But then we kind of forget when somebody leaves, we need to terminate their access to our computer systems and to our data. And it seems like that's something that maybe didn't happen here. The other thing, and again, you know, this is something that is typically going to be constrained by resources, but with some of our larger clients, we talk a lot about separation of duty or separation of privilege, which means that in able to make massive changes that could disable a system, there have to be two people involved. One person has the username and the other person has the password, or one person has the username and password and the other holds the multi-factor authentication token. And so again, that can be something that can be really helpful, but if you don't have the resources, which we already talked about, it can be a little bit more difficult to implement that. So it really comes back to that process of making sure that when someone has exited your organization, that they have also lost the ability to access information systems. Heather, thank you again for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to catching up with you next week. Thanks for having me. For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Amanda Klassner, Deputy Editor at Cybercrime Magazine. To hear more about this story and others, visit CybercrimeWire.com. And for more of our media, visit our website at CybersecurityVentures.com.